Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 31. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find Romans chapter 3, verse 9, uh, and following, beginning on page 940. Last Sunday, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his now famous 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. A thesis is a proposition that is being set forth for debate. And so Luther's 95 theses were were 95 propositions that he hoped to debate with the church. The subject of Luther's theses, the, the subject that Luther wanted to debate was the sale of indulgences. And an indulgence is a, a way of giving money to the church for the purpose of paying for part of the debt of your sin. Paying for part of the, the debt that you would have to work off in order to enter into heaven at death or through purgatory after death. And so Luther was, was calling this whole system of indulgences into question. But of course, he wasn't calling only the system of indulgences into question. He was actually calling the entire gospel, the entire doctrine of salvation that was taught by the Roman church in his day into question. He wanted to to challenge the gospel that was being taught by the church of Rome. And he particularly wanted to challenge the authority of the Pope and of the the church as a whole to establish new doctrines, to, to redefine that gospel. Luther believed that Scripture alone had the authority to define the gospel. It was Scripture alone that had the authority to bind men's conscience. It was Scripture alone that had, to, that had the authority to tell us what we are to believe and what we are to do. Because it was Scripture alone that came to us as the very Word of God. And therefore, inasmuch as the gospel taught by Rome was out of accord with the gospel taught in the Scriptures... The gospel taught by Rome was wrong, it was in error, and it was in need of correction. And that is precisely what Luther was seeking by posting his 95 theses on the, the door. He was, he was seeking to bring reform to the church. He was, he was seeking to correct the errors of the Pope and of the others who followed him. Luther had no way of knowing the effect that his post would have. He, had, he had no way of knowing that, that posting those 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg would light a fuse that would ignite in a Protestant Reformation that led to the recovery of the gospel, not only in Germany, but throughout Europe, and eventually even to the ends of the earth. But if that is what happened. When Luther posted those 95 theses, the, the fuse was lit And the gospel was recovered, and that gospel began to bear fruit and increase even to the ends of the earth, even to Cleveland, Tennessee. Every evangelical church in the United States, every evangelical church here in Cleveland can trace its roots back to the Reformation. The word evangelical is is somewhat amorphous today. It's somewhat malleable. You're not always sure what what people mean. But, But at its most basic, to be evangelical is to hold to the evangel. 
To be evangelical is simply to hold to the gospel, that, that gospel recovered during the Protestant Reformation. And nevertheless, many who would call themselves evangelicals today are suspicious of the language of Reformed theology. Even though they are, in fact, Reformed, even though, in fact, their roots trace back to the Reformation, they are, they are suspicious. They're not quite sure what it means. They're not quite sure that it's biblical. And that is why, last Sunday, I began a new series of sermons on the pillars of the Reformation, on what are known as the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. These are the pillars of Reformed theology. These are are the pillars, the, the summation of what it means to be Reformed. And my goal in studying these five solas, my my goal in, in studying these five pillars of Reformed theology is simply to show you that these five pillars are nothing more and nothing less than a statement of the biblical gospel. Reformed theology is not something added on. It's not an addendum. It's not an addition. It is simply a summary of the gospel taught by Paul and the other apostles. And my plan is to show you that by showing you that each of these five pillars can be found in Paul's letter to the Romans. That that Paul, as he writes his letter to the Romans, he is is giving his most basic statement of the gospel. In some sense, the the letter to the Romans is the sermon that Paul wished he could preach in Rome, but, but couldn't quite get there to preach. And so in the letter of Romans, we have Paul's most basic summary of the gospel. And in this letter, we have all five pillars expounded. And so over the course of of the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at these. We started last Sunday with Sola Scriptura, which we see in in Paul's introduction of himself in the very first verse of the letter. Paul introduces himself as a servant of God called to be an apostle, one who has been called and, and gifted to speak the very words of God, the reason that the Romans ought to listen to him, the reason that the, the Romans ought to receive this letter as the very words of God are because he speaks as an apostle. And now today we will see that the message that he has been given as an apostle to proclaim is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we will spend the next three weeks looking at each of those, but beginning this morning with sola gratia, grace alone, especially as it is expounded for us in the third chapter of this great letter. Let us read it together. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. This is the very word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips." Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, this is your word, living and active, powerful for the salvation of those who believe. And so we ask, Father, that your spirit would attend the preaching of your word here this morning, that he would cause my words to be faithful and true, and that he would cause them to be effective in the hearts of those who hear, that they would bring forth much fruit to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, there's a lot in these verses, more than we can possibly cover in a single sermon. But I want you to see this morning is that here in the third chapter of his letter to the Romans, Paul sets before us the doctrine of sola gratia, the doctrine of grace alone. But what does it mean? What does it mean to speak of grace alone? I want to suggest to you that the language of grace alone is is again a shorthand. It is a shorthand for saying that salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is not earned by works, but rather it is received as a gift. Now in some sense, sola gratia is probably the least controversial of the five pillars. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation is by grace, and it taught that it was by grace even in Luther's day. In fact, the the church might not even object to the language of grace alone. I I don't know of of any Christian who would object to the language of of grace. I don't know of any Christian who would object to, to speaking of the necessity of grace for salvation. And I think that the vast majority no matter where you go in the world, would be comfortable saying that salvation is by grace alone. And so, in some sense, there's no controversy here. But of course, the the controversy has to do with how grace is defined. 
of what we mean when we speak of grace. Because the Roman Catholic Church and and many others define grace in such a way that while the, the language is in maintained, the very essence of grace alone is undermined. Let me explain what I mean. As I I said, the, the essence of sola gratia is that salvation is not earned by works, but rather that salvation is a gift. It is a gift given and received, given by God and received by us. We see this, for example, in Romans chapter 11. Paul says, if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Do you you hear what he's saying? He says, this is pretty clear. He says, listen, if it's by grace, it's not by works. And if it's by works, then it's not by grace. If If salvation is on the basis of works, then salvation is a wage paid according to debt. It is something that you are owed because you have earned it. If it is something that has been earned, then it's not according to grace. But if salvation is apart from works of the law, as Paul says, then it is a gift given, not according to debt, not according to what has been earned, but rather it is a gift given according to grace. And this is where it becomes significant to to define precisely what we mean by grace and by grace alone. As I said, the, the church in, in Luther's day acknowledged the necessity of grace. They, they freely admitted that there was no possibility of salvation without grace. In fact, some 1,000 years before the Reformation, they had condemned a monk named Pelagius. And Pelagius taught that, that people could be good enough in their own strength to earn salvation. He thought that if God commanded something that it must be true that we had the natural ability to do it because it would be wrong of God to command us to do something that we could not do. And so therefore he drew the conclusion that people in their own power must have the ability to be good enough. They must have the ability to do the the good works necessary to earn salvation. Grace can help, but it's not necessary. And the Roman Catholic Church, under the the leadership of of St. Augustine, condemned Pelagius. They said that Pelagius was was wrong, that what he was teaching was out of accord with the Scriptures. And in so doing, they affirmed the absolute necessity of grace. But, and here there was a but, but they defined grace in such a way that it undermined the true gospel. Because you see, they ended up defining grace as the gift of God that enabled people to be good enough. Pelagius said you could be good enough on your own, and the church said, no, you can't, you're a sinner. You need God's grace, but God's grace will help you be good enough. It will help you do the good works that are necessary unto salvation. Grace is the power of God given so that you might establish your own righteousness with God and thereby earn His favor. That is the gospel that was being taught in Luther's day. And what I hope to show you this morning is that is not the gospel at all. That is not the gospel that Paul preached. That is not the gospel that is contained here in Paul's letter to the Romans. God does not help you earn your salvation. 
Grace is, is not the power and the strength that you need to be good enough. Rather, God's gift is salvation. Grace is the gift of the righteousness that makes you right with God and earns all the blessings of the covenant. Salvation itself is God's gracious gift. Salvation itself is what God gives. And that is what we mean when we say that salvation is by grace alone. Not that grace will help you be good enough, but that salvation itself is the gift of God's grace. And this is exactly what Paul is is driving at in Romans chapter 3. In fact, we, we see it clearly summarized in verse 21. Look with me there. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In that single sentence, we we have the whole doctrine of grace alone summarized in in a single statement. But if we're going to fully understand what Paul is saying, we need to expand beyond that single statement. We we need to see the before and after contrast that Paul is drawing here. Notice what Paul says. He says, but now. In other words, before this was true, but now this is true. It's a, it's a classic before and after. And we need to look at both sides of the before and after if we're going to truly understand the point that Paul is making. So let's begin with the before. Before, verse 21, in verses 9 through 20, and really beginning all the way back in verse 18 of chapter 1, before we were hopeless. We were lost. We were without hope because we were apart from Christ. We, we see this as we look in the, the section before verse 21. Look with me at verse 9. Paul asks a question. He, he asks a question that, that flows directly out of the argument that he's been making up to this point in his letter. Remember how the letter unfolds. In, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1, we, we looked last week at verse 1. But in the opening paragraph of this letter, Paul introduces himself and he identifies the Romans as the intended recipients of this letter. This is just sort of letter writing 101 in the ancient world. It's the way your emails work today. It says to, it says from, and it gives you a subject line. That's exactly what Paul is doing in the first paragraph of Romans Then, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 1, he tells them of his desire to preach the gospel. He says, I long to come to you and to to preach the gospel. And why? Why does he come? Why does he want to come to the gospel? Because he knows that this gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he longs to reap a harvest among them. Not just a harvest of initial converts, but a harvest of building up those who already believe in their faith that they might more and more bring forth the fruits of righteousness. And so Paul longs to preach the gospel in Rome, but he can't get there. He can't get there. For, for one reason or another, he hasn't been able to get to Rome yet. And so this letter is in some sense the sermon that he longed to preach in Rome. This is the presentation of the gospel that he longed to give But he begins his presentation of the gospel in a somewhat strange way. Because beginning at verse 18 of of chapter 1, Paul begins what is supposed to be a presentation of the gospel, what is supposed to be a presentation of the good news. He begins with the bad news. He, He begins speaking about God's wrath against sinners. In chapter 1, 18 through 32, he, he tells us clearly that God's wrath is against all those who, who knowingly and willingly do all manner of evil. 
If you willfully do what you know is wrong, then God's wrath is against you. And that may not be assumed in our day, but in Paul's day, that was sort of taken for granted. This would not have come as any surprise. The the Jewish people who were reading Paul's letter would have agreed, but so would have the Gentiles. They all would have recognized, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. God's wrath is against those who knowingly and and willfully do evil. Those who, who not only do such things, but give their approval to them, are under the wrath of God. But the twist comes at the beginning of chapter 2. Because notice what Paul says there. He says, if God's wrath is against such people, against people who who break God's law willfully and and knowingly, then why do so-called moral people think that they will escape God's wrath if they do the very same thing? True, they're not as bold in their sin. True, they they are not as flagrant. They're not as defiant. They don't shake their fist in God's face. They don't call what they're doing good. They, They may even acknowledge the goodness of God's law. But they don't actually keep it. And if they don't keep God's law, if they don't do the things that they call good, if they they do the things that they call evil, then why do they think that they will escape the wrath of God if they do the very same things? This is the point that Paul is driving home in verse 13 of chapter 2. Notice what he says. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Hearing the law is not enough. You actually have to do it. Simply knowing the law, simply affirming that the law is good, this is not what what makes you righteous in the sight of God. It is not hearing only, but it is doing. This is the basic principle of, of works. If you would be justified by works, you actually have to keep the law. And this has implications for the Jews who are hearing this letter read for the first time, as Paul begins to point out in verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2. Notice what he says. He says, a Jew who knows the law, a Jew who delights in the law, a Jew who boasts in the law, but who doesn't keep the law, is under God's wrath the same as anybody else. A Jew who is circumcised, the, sort of the, the external token of his obedience to the law, of his submission to the law. The Jew who is circumcised but doesn't actually keep the law will be regarded as uncircumcised, Paul says in verse 25. If you keep the law, you will be justified. If you break the law, you will not be justified. It is not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who are right with God. This is the principle that that Paul is driving home. But of course, this leads to a question that we see there at the beginning of of chapter 3. If it's true that, that God's wrath is against all those who fail to keep His law, even against His chosen people, even against the Jews, then the Jews want to ask, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? What's the good of being a Jew if you're, if you're still going to be judged by God? And Paul's answer to this question comes in two parts. First, Paul says that there is a great advantage in being a Jew. For no other nation was given the oracles of God. No other nation had the law of God written. And no other nation knew the God who had given that law. 
the Jews not only had the law, but they, they knew the God who had given the law. Therefore, they were in a position to trust and love that God, even when they didn't understand all that uh, was behind the giving of the law. They, were, they had a tremendous advantage. But, Paul says, it was not an ultimate advantage. It was not a, a final advantage. Because having the law did not exempt them from having to keep the law. This is what Paul means in, in verse 9 when he asks, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we better, any better off than the Gentiles? He says, no. Yes, you, you have the oracles of God. Yes, you, you know God and you know His law. But you still must keep the law. And therefore, if you are a sinner, if you are a lawbreaker, you are under the wrath of God, same as anyone else. And this is the point that, that Paul is, is driving home in that long litany of Old Testament quotations when he says, listen, you are as you used to describe your enemies. That's, that's what verses 10 through 18 are. These are, these are a description of, of Israel's enemies from the Old Testament. And now Paul says, you are like them. You are lawbreakers. You are sinners like the rest of mankind. And therefore, you, like them, are under the wrath of God. For notice what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, if, if you're under the law, you're responsible to do whatever the law says. Whatever the law says, it says to you if you're under the law. You are responsible to keep the law and because you are responsible to keep the law, the consequence, the, the outcome, is that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Now that doesn't just mean that you'll have to give an account. The, the language that Paul used there, it, it's anticipating that the, the, the sentence is going to be condemnation. It's not that you're going to be judged, given account, and be found to have fulfilled the law. But he says, listen, the whole world is accountable. The whole world is condemned. And not only are they condemned, but they are condemned beyond reasonable doubt. Their mouths are stopped. There's nothing that they can say in their defense. Their, their guilt is overwhelmingly clear. Why? Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being, literally no flesh, will be justified in His sight. No flesh will be justified. No flesh will be declared righteous before God by works of the law. Because all that the law does is expose us as sinners. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this is what we must know. This is the before picture. We must see this to be true. We must see that, that in our own strength, based upon our own record, we cannot possibly justify ourselves in God's sight. We cannot earn His blessing because we cannot keep the law. It's the same point that, that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 3. He says, all who rely on the law, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. If you do not keep the law, you will not be justified in God's sight. You cannot be righteous through the law without perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. And therefore, if you are under the law, you are under curse. If you are under the law, you are condemned. And this is true for, for everyone. 
Jew and Gentile. This is true for everyone, Easterner, Westerner. This is, this is true for all of us. If we are under the law, we are condemned and we are without hope. But of course, it is, it is this bad news that makes the good news so good. Remember, Paul said that he was about proclaiming the gospel, so he has to have some good news somewhere. The question is, what is the good news that Paul is going to proclaim? What is the good news that Paul is going to proclaim to to sinners who, who cannot be justified by the law because they cannot keep it? I think we can imagine two ways forward for Paul, can we not? There are really two ways that, that Paul could, could move forward at this point. First, Paul could say, no flesh will be justified by works of the law because no flesh can actually keep the law. But now in Christ Jesus, grace has been given to you so that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can keep the law. And by keeping the law, you can be justified in God's sight. That would be a good news of sorts. It would be a good news of sorts because it would at least give you some hope that, that maybe now in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be good enough to earn God's favor. And as I said, that is the gospel that was being proclaimed in Luther's day. That was the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. That, that through the church and, and through the Holy Spirit, you can receive enough grace to be good enough to earn your way into heaven. But of course, that is not the gospel that Paul preaches. That is not at all what Paul says. Look with me again at verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That's Paul's gospel. Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Now given the context, most uh, commentators understand that when Paul speaks here of the righteousness of God, he is speaking of the righteousness of justification. He's just said that that you cannot be righteous in God's sight through works of the law. And therefore, when he speaks of a righteousness of God that has been revealed, it must be that he is talking about a, a righteousness of justification, a righteousness by which we can be declared righteous. And note... The righteousness that he is referring to, the, the righteousness that has been revealed in the law, is, or revealed in the gospel, is a righteousness that is apart from the law. It is not a righteousness by grace through the law, but rather it is a righteousness apart from the law. It is a righteousness separate from the law. It is a righteousness having nothing to do with the law. It was foretold in the Law and the Prophets. It was foretold in the Old Testament. But it is separate from, apart from, the Law of God. Of course, this raises a question. If this righteousness is apart from the Law, where does it come from? Well, Paul answers that question for us in in verse 22. He writes, This righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so the righteousness that Paul is speaking of, the the righteousness of God that has now been revealed in the gospel, it is a righteousness that is in Christ. And we'll talk more about that in in the weeks ahead. It It is a righteousness that has its source in Christ, a righteousness that is received by faith. We'll we'll take those up in the following weeks. But for now, notice that it is a righteousness that is alien. It is a righteousness that is not your own. It is a righteousness that has its source outside of you. And the second thing that Paul says here is important too. 
Because it is a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, there are people who, who think that that's somewhat redundant, that it's superfluous, that he's already said it's through faith. Why does he need to say it's for all who believe? But that, that phrase is actually crucial because it is through faith and it is for all who believe. It's not that faith is necessary plus something else, but if you believe, this righteousness is yours. It is a righteousness for all who believe, and that is the essence of grace alone. It is the essence of this this glorious doctrine, that salvation, the very righteousness that makes us right with God is given to us as a gift. Grace is not what empowers us to be good enough to establish our righteousness. But the gift of God's grace is the righteousness we need. This is the the point that Paul is driving home. This is the point that, that Paul wants us to see. That grace is the gift of righteousness itself. Grace is the gift of salvation itself. And so that if you have received the gift of God's grace, you have received salvation. You've not received what you need to now go and do good works and be good enough to earn God's favor. Yes, you will do good works in the power of His grace. But you do those good works as one who has been saved. You do those good works as one who has been justified. You you do those good works as one who has been reconciled to God. You do not do those good works to the end of being justified or to the end of being saved. But you do those good works in the freedom that is now yours as one who has been saved. This is why Paul says boasting is excluded If grace has helped to be good enough, then then you still have something to boast about, right? Because we all know of those athletes who have superior talent and ability, but they waste it. They don't do anything with the gifts that they have been given. And then, of course, there are those with much lesser ability who make the most of their gifts and and go much farther than anybody could ever imagine. If, If grace is simply God's help, you still have to make the most of the help that you are given, and there's something to boast about if you, if you maximize your potential. But that's not the gospel. Rather, the gospel is that to those who have nothing, God has given everything. To those who were dead in their sins, God has made them alive. To those who were under condemnation, He has given the righteousness they need to stand before Him without fear and to claim all the blessings of the covenant. And that is, of course, a tremendously humbling doctrine. It it excludes boasting. It means we have contributed nothing to our salvation. It means all the glory goes to God and to God alone. If you are saved this morning, it's not because you were better than anyone else. It's not because you did more than anyone else. If you are saved this morning, it's because God has lavished His grace on you. It's because God in His mercy and His love pulled you out of the pit. It's because God made you alive when you were dead in your sins. All the glory of salvation goes to Him and to Him alone. And that is humbling. Because it means we can can claim nothing for ourselves. But I want you to see that not only is it humbling, it is also liberating. Because if you this morning are attempting to, to be good enough in the power of His grace, then I can promise you are either delusional or you are in despair. Either you have a a gross misconception about how well you are doing, 
or you despair of ever being good enough. And God did not intend to leave us in such a condition. He did not intend to to leave us having to pretend to be better than we are or having to despair of ever being good enough. Because the truth is, you're not. Even now, in Christ, you are not good enough. Even this morning, you have sinned in ways that could exclude you from God's presence for all eternity. Even this morning, you have sinned in ways that, that disqualify you from ever ascending His hill. You are a sinner. But in Christ, you are righteous. Not because you're doing the best you can with the grace He's given you, but because He has given you the righteousness of Christ. He has clothed you in His righteousness. He has declared you to to be united to Him so that His goodness is yours. And so the blessings that He has earned are now yours by right. You can give up all efforts to earn it. You can give up all efforts to be good enough. And you can simply rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You can say that I am right with Him because of what God has done for me in Christ, not because of what I have done for God in Christ. And do you hear the difference? It's not what you have done, but what He has done for you. And therefore, you are free. I can remember hearing one of my pastors say when I was younger, he said, the gospel is not that you are now free to struggle to be good enough. You know, it's not that you're struggling to, to, to earn it, but rather it is that you are now good enough and therefore free to struggle. You're free to strive after the good works that he has prepared for you to do, knowing that he will be with you in them because you have already been reconciled to him. You are already his child. You are already an heir of his kingdom. You are already invited to sit at his table. Your seat, your seat is secure. It has been bought and paid for, not with your own works, but with the precious blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And in him you stand. And in him you are secure. Because salvation is by grace alone. And that is why grace alone is at the very heart of what we call the gospel. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. And we thank you for your grace. And we ask, Father, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to to see and to understand and to rest in this grace. And that we would know the assurance of your love that is ours through Christ as we stand before you clothed in his righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.